Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning. Um, who uh, was woken by stormy, stormy winds outside their windows and convinced that the bins had flown far, far away? Did anybody bins actually fly? fly f- yes. Nice. Oh, ow. Expensive. Sorry. Praying. <laughs> Been there. Okay. Um, so... Nothing to do with today. Uh, my name is Jo. Nice to see you all. Um, this morning we are having a bit of a bridge preach. We've just finished an awesome series on the Bible, what it is, how we use it, why we should engage with it, and all that fun. And we're just coming into a new season on prayer, what it is, why we should do it, how to engage with it. There's a theme. And uh, so I thought... I would do something on prayer in the Bible. I know. Um, and obviously, we're going to end with Abram and Melchizedek, because that's a completely obvious link to everyone. No. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> and if you don't even know who, you, who they are, you're in good company. So, it's going to make sense, I promise. You're with me. You're with me? People at the back are less convinced, but I'm going to go with the front. Okay, so this morning we are having an exploration around the art of good conversation. Thank you. Um, So I spent hours Googling uh, conversation quotes, slash five minutes, and uh, this is what Google's wisdom threw up at me. So we start with, nothing compares to a beautiful conversation with a beautiful mind. (laughs) I have no words. Okay, next one. The best way to know someone is to have a conversation with them. I think we can go with that. Next one. To have someone understand your mind is a different kind of intimacy. (laughs) I know. Bless. Anyway, uh, next one. I just love being ignored, said no one, ever. Next one. All problems exist in the absence of good conversation. Next one. I like people who can keep the conversation going no matter how random the topics get. I'd like to suggest this morning that prayer very simply, is a conversation. Just imagine God saying all those quotes about the conversations he wants and gets to have with us. He invites us into a space where we can converse with him. And the amazing thing is, we do. We do it all day. We do it regularly. We do it in church. We've done it this morning. But we also use prayer sometimes a little bit as a wish list. It's quite a one-sided conversation if you're anything like me. 
where I get to turn around to God and say how tired I am, how stressed I am at work, latest worries, insights, gifts that I see in other people that I'd really like in myself, sins I see in myself that I'd really wish were just in other people. (laughs) The conversation can get one-sided. We've had a lot of time this uh, last few weeks talking about what the Bible is, how we use it. But the Bible itself isn't just this academic endeavor that we wrestle with and question and use to understand the world. It's also a conversation topic. It is a way to ask God about what is going on in his world, in his experience, from his perspective. We get to engage with half of a conversation through reading and praying through the scriptures. So that's what I want to talk about this morning, because I'd like to suggest that, as Mary Oliver says, attention is the beginning of worship. And God is asking for our attention. How distracted we get, what's already preoccupying our mind. A friend of mine had a meeting um, a few weeks ago with some important council official person, Bod. And he turned up at the office, and the guy came out looking quite flustered. And it became very quickly apparent that there had been a bit of a diary malfunction, and the guy had no idea that my friend was turning up. And was being very polite and British about the whole thing, but really this was more of an inconvenience than it was going to be a productive meeting. So my friend very quickly turned around and said can I just ask you how long we've got? Giving the permission to the person who he was talking with to say not that long, but also to frame the depths of the conversation that could take place. What happens if every time we come to God in prayer or in Bible study, God is asking, how long have you got? How much of my attention Am I giving him when I engage with his scriptures or whether I engage with him in conversation? If he hasn't got my attention, there's no way he's got my worship. So when we engage with the scriptures, when we engage in prayer, is it because my attention is on the things that are preoccupying me and my mind? Or is it because I want to have a heart of worship being led into the peace and presence of God? So that's where we are this morning. So to do that, as I said, I think sometimes we look at the Bible as a really tricky text. We've had some great talks about the fact that it's not one book, it's a library, it's got loads of different styles of writing, it's written by numerous authors, it spans a whole millennia of time. It is a complex set of writings that inspire questions and struggles and difficulties. It's not easy, right? Would everyone be fairly comfortable with this idea? But it's also... um, something that is incredibly important to us. And one of the scriptures that we often go to when talking about what the Bible says about itself is 2 Timothy 3.16. Does anybody familiar with this scripture? All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Yes? Uh, Any of you who've been through university and CUs have probably heard this scripture quite a lot. Um, What we often take this scripture to mean 
is that the Bible is credible. Yes, it's authoritative. Um, some people will talk about the inerrancy of the Bible, that it doesn't make mistakes. It's, it's good, it's true, it's right. And I think all of those things are true, but I would also suggest that that is not what this verse is talking about. I'd like to look at this little phrase, God breathed. Where else in scripture do you know that it uses the phrase God breathed or breath of God? Can anyone suggest? Genesis 1. Yes, who said that? Ah, right at the back. Genesis 1. God breathed over Adam and the breath of life entered him. Anyone else? Jesus breathed over the disciples. Excellent. After the resurrection, in the closed upper room, Jesus breathed over his disciples. Any others? There are at least one other that I could think of, um, which is Ezekiel, when he is um, over the Valley of Dry Bones, and God pro- asks him to prophesy breath of life over the bones, and they rise up like an army. God breathed isn't when, uh, when God breathed over Adam, he wasn't making Adam credible and trustworthy. When um, Adam was, when Jesus was breathing over the disciples, it wasn't at that moment in order to make them authoritative. The breath of God is about giving life about finding our relationship rooted and founded in him. When scripture is is described as being God-breathed, it is declaring to us that it can be the source of our life. It is life-giving. Yes, it is true and credible and authoritative and good for teaching, rebuking, and um, uh, whatever the other word was, in all righteousness. But it is life-giving. Giving. So, how do we read the Bible and use it in our prayers to engage with it as a life-giving tool, as part of the conversation drawing us into God? Well, over church history, there has been um, different ways of doing this, but ultimately, uh, very commonly, they're broken down into four levels, layers of reading some of which you'll be instantly familiar with. Some of you will be more familiar with the Lecto Divina style of this. Anyone do Lecto Divina in their prayers? Excellent. I love it. Um, So instead of how many of you are using Bible in a year at the moment, the HTB, Nikki Gumbel, there's a few of you. So Bible in a year asks you to read multiple chapters every day for a whole year so you get through the whole scripture. Lecto Divina is arguably completely and utterly opposite. It is how long can you spend on single words, let alone verses, let alone chapters, let alone the whole thing. So it's all about slowing down. But it isn't just simply about slowing down and taking notice. It's about the depths that you can go to through Scripture. So over the years, these have been called the different layers or levels of reading. The first one is very simply reading. Um, Think back to GCSEs, 
close reading skills, you are literally reading the text. This is what we're probably most familiar with. We do it in church every week. Um, you did it in Sunday school. You read the text. It's not very complicated. You are, but you're reading the text to notice. You're reading the text to see what's going on. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to um, have spent years studying at university to come and encounter Jesus in a fresh way, just simply through reading the words. The, um, the old-fashioned terminology for this is the literal reading. What does the text actually say? And for some of us in this room, that's quite hard because we've spent an awful lot of time being trained in the second level of Bible reading, which is reflect. This is the allegorical sure, uh, reading where we, we study we ask the context. We look for themes and threads throughout the Bible. We tie things together. We relate one part to another. We open a commentary. We learn what it says in the Greek and Hebrew, if you can be bothered or you just Google it. We investigate what different um, passages sound like in different translations. We study it. Um, if you're from an evangelical tradition, you are very good at this. This is the exegesis. This is the hermeneutics, if you heard Phil talk about it last week. This is wrestling with the text. Um, this is the degree bit. And lots of preachers stand because they've got the degree bit and tell you all about it. And so we go off and we can quote the Greek later and sound impressive. Um, and it's really helpful because it takes us away from the immediate and puts us in a bigger story. It frames the story of God um, telling us through scripture about his son and telling us through scripture about how he wants to reconcile the world to himself and bring us back into a place of newness and creation, new creation. The reflective process is really important to take us beyond the immediacy and into something bigger. But often we get stuck with the reflective process in the study phase. Um, Ignatius, one of the um, Catholic early church fathers, would argue that we needed to use our imaginations as much as our intellects when it comes to studying and reflecting with scripture. How do you imagine yourself into the stories that you're reading? What does it feel like to be walking down the streets with Jesus or part of the crowd? What does the sun feel like when you're stuck in the desert with the Israelites? What does the abandonment feel like when you're part of the early church receiving letters from Paul? When you're in the reflective stage with your imagination, you can often start your prayers with, I wonder... I wonder what that felt like. I wonder what you wanted to say to those people at that time, Jesus. I wonder what I would have done in that situation, Lord. You start phrases with, I wonder, and it leads you into a different place of reading with your scripture. It leads you into a different conversation. And as you go through that process, you end up at the next bit, which is the response bit 
where you take your questions, you take your imaginings, you take your study and your learnings, you take the bits that don't make sense, and you bring them to the Father. You start with questions. What did you mean by this? What do you want me to learn from this? How do I understand who you are in this? Ask the Holy Spirit, what are the words you want me to notice in this passage? What do I need to carry from our time in this moment into the rest of my day? How do I take this deeper and further? How does this not just sit in my head, but it moves into my heart? Which then leads us into the final level of reading, the bit that I find so, so hard. The bit some people call rest, other people call abiding, some people call mystery, some people call contemplation. What it means to simply sit in the tension of the questions that you have, in the uncertainty, in the lack of clarity, and look upon the face of God. What does it mean to rest in worship and give him your attention? How do you use scripture to carry you through those phases? So for some of you, you'll be familiar with the Lecto Divina style. You can use these layers and these questions just in one reading in one day. But if you notice, actually, sometimes we come to Scripture in seasons. Sometimes during your phase, you're really trying to understand the bigger picture. And it is about the study, and it is about the depth, and it is about going deeper into what is going on. And that's really important. Sometimes it's about coming fresh and innocently and naively to a text that you're too familiar with but want to look at with fresh eyes. And sometimes it's about learning how to be silent and let the other party in the conversation have a turn. Scripture is a really helpful tool to bring you back into the presence of God it's not simply about getting it right or understanding or wrestling through, but seeking the face of God. You can take this um, principle even further by recognizing that in Scripture, it isn't just about having a conversation with God but it is actually more about understanding who Jesus is throughout the whole story. Because we fundamentally believe that Jesus is the primal reality of all existence. We would argue that Jesus is the foundation. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. The cosmos, the entire universe is shaped around Jesus. We are made in his image. He is the determining factor behind all reality. All history, our entire human existence is made in, through, and with him. He is the goal. He is the destination, the end point to which all history is tended. In short, Jesus is everything. And if Jesus is everything in the cosmos, then it probably stands to reason that Jesus is everything in Scripture as well. 
as one um, uh, old abbot uh, in the 17th century, I think, Hugo of St. Victor. He said, all sacred scripture is but one book, and that book is Christ. Because all divine scripture, all divine scripture speaks of Christ, and all divine scripture is fulfilled in Christ. You see, his presence can be felt on every page, in every incident, throughout every prophecy, in every life. Jesus is not simply a character that appears somewhere towards the end, drawing all the random threads together. Instead, Jesus is the central character from first page to last. The Bible, above all else, is the book of Christ. So if every page whispers his name, as the Jesus Storybook Bible, those who have kids would know. Thank you. Um, Every page is revealing Christ. Now, the fancy word for this is Christocentric reading. If you are a geek, any other geeks in the room today? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, Tim Keller has about 32 hours on Christocentric preaching, it's absolutely brilliant. It's called Preaching Christ to the Postmodern World. You will properly geek out. This is what I do on holiday. <laughs> he knows it's true. There was also a, a Yale undergraduate New Testament theology course I did on holiday. Um, <laughs> this was pre-kids, um, but it's really fun. Um, anyway, it's just brilliant. So this is completely nicked. Tim Keller would argue that you can come to every scripture and ask three questions. How does this passage reveal Jesus to me? How does this passage exalt Jesus to me? And how does this passage lead me to adore Jesus? Every scripture will reveal something of who Jesus is and who you are in Christ if you ask these questions of the Holy Spirit because every page shouts his name. Just to nick Tim Keller a little bit further because it's brilliant. He wrote this um, poem to indicate how Jesus in a little snapshot is the true and better. So he said... Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call. Oh, sorry, skipped a bit. Jesus is the true and better Adam. Starts with Adam. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, now blood cries out not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and to go into the void, not knowing whether he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mountain, but was truly sacrificed for us all. When God said to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain, sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, for whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice that we deserve so that we, like Jacob, 
only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him into slavery, or sold him, and uses power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who, struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the true innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it for themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so that the angel of death passes over us. He is the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible isn't really about you, it's about him. All scripture points to Jesus. We know the end of the story, right? Jesus dies on a cross. He declares it is finished. He rises again, defeats all sin and all death, and is elevated to sit at the right hand of the Father. We know the end of the story, which means that when we come to Scripture, it's like reading a uh, murder mystery novel and already knowing who did it. Right? We already know the punchline. We already know the twists and turns. But if you're anything like me, when you've read a, a twisty novel or watched a film, the one that did this me, this will date me, Fight Club. Such a good film. But my goodness, it, I spent hours going through that film after I watched it, trying to work out where they got it wrong. There had to be a moment where they slipped up and it didn't work. If you haven't seen it, I won't do spoilers, but it's really um, my point being that when we go back into scripture, when we know the end, we see the hints, we see the clues, we know what breadcrumbs God has been dropping all the way through. So what I want to do for the last uh, few minutes is tell a little story, as I warned you, because I want to see what happens when we listen to what scripture is doing. And we read it, and we bring out some study points, and it leads us into a place to respond, and hopefully, ultimately, it leads us to a place of worship. So I was praying about which story I wanted to share with you this morning, and I really felt for some reason that Abram and Melchizedek was a good one to share. So we're going to share it, and I'm going to share it, and I, as I do, what I'd like you to do is listen. I'd like you to notice Notice what's happening in the story. Notice the little tidbits of information and the little color. Ask the Holy Spirit to point out the bits that you need to pay attention to this morning. Ask the Holy Spirit who you are in that story. 
who Jesus is, is in this story and how he is ministering to you. So as we go through it, pay attention, okay? So we're in Genesis 14. Um, Abraham is not yet Abraham. He's Abram. His name changes when the promise of Isaac is made. Um, so he's got no kids. He's still wandering around. He is in the land of Canaan. He got up. Um, he left the land of Ur, which his father never managed to do. There's a great verse in Genesis 7, 11 about not settling. Um, and he's with his nephew. And he's doing quite well, it's fair to say. But his nephew, Lot, has his own household. And Abram has his own household. And in Genesis 13, we get to hear a little bit of disagreement happening. Ever notice siblings that are just rubbing each other up the wrong way? Um, we're still uh, close enough to Christmas to know the trauma of families being locked in a household for too long. This is what's going on in Abram and, and Lot's households. The, they, they blame it on the men. The men are grumbling. And, they say, and Abram says, look, before we fall out, there's enough land for everyone. Why don't you take your people and go off somewhere? You can pick wherever you want, and we'll go in the opposite direction, and hopefully we'll stay friends. So Lot, being younger and being a bit more wide-eyed, spots the, land, uh, the city of Sodom. Now, Sodom at that point, we discover in, verse, in chapter 14, had tar pits. And that's a really little clue, good little clue about why Sodom was so significant in the region. You see, that region was a seafaring region. All of their trade happened over water. And what do you need for an economy based on water? You need ships. And what do ships need to be? They have to be waterproof. The tar pits was how you waterproofed your ships. It's the equivalent of the Far East, at the Middle East and their oil reserves. This was the major, major piece of the economy at that time. Whoever controlled the tar pits controlled the economy. They had the most money. It was the place to be. It was like the city of London, all the financial services. There was parties, there was live, all the young people wanted to be there. And Lot turned around to Abram and said, I'm going there. Abram said, sure, off you go. So off Lot went and settled in Sodom. Now what we hear in chapter 14 is that life is not well in Sodom. Sodom has been... Um, for all intents and purposes, been subsumed into an empire of a league of four kings. Um, Kedaloamir and the four kings own the region of five kings, Sodom, Gomorrah, and a whole load of others. So you've got four kings taking taxes and making all of these cities subject to them. And they've been under this subjectivity for 12 years. And then we read, on the 13th year... Sodom, Gomorrah, and the others say, we are powerful enough. We are not going to be subject to those four kings anymore. This is our wealth, this is our property, and we're not going to pay it. So for the 13th year, they didn't pay their taxes. And on the 14th year, the League of Four Kings rode over the hills and laid waste to Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three kings. 
Um, they took control of the tar pits and they took all the wealth and all the people as captives and led them back over the hills, including Lot and his family. Then we learn that one little lad managed to escape and knowing who Lot's um, uncle was, raced to Hebron to tell Abram what had happened. Then we hear that Abram rallied his 318 men, which is a little clue to say Abram has an army, um, which basically means Abram is now a king. This guy that left with nothing has established himself, has built so much wealth and success, he now has an army to call his own. So he gets his army and he calls his friends, other kings, as allies, and they go after Kedaloamir and the four kings to claim back Lot, his household, and the rest of the five kings' wealth, riches, and people. Abram wins. He defeats the League of Four Kings and takes back the riches. Now, in custom, the victoring king, the saving king, the king that did the good deed, is met by the king that he has rescued in the Valley of the Kings. So it's this, um, I think, it's um, the same valley that you see in uh, Indiana Jones. Again, dating myself. And it's really narrow. You can only get one horse through at a time. So in other words, there's no way to attack the person with all the riches. So you can't win, you can't ambush them. So it's this really narrow um, pathway. So Abram enters the Valley of the Kings and the King of Sodom comes from the other side, ready to lay at his feet and beg for mercy because now Abram is his king. And all of Sodom's wealth is now Abram's wealth. He has done it. But before Abram meets the king of Sodom, he's intercepted. He's intercepted by this mysterious figure called the Melchizedek, the title King of Righteousness. And Melchizedek interrupts Abram and ministers to him with bread and wine and gives him a blessing. He gives him a blessing by revealing Abram a new name of God, El Ilion. God has never been called that before in Genesis. It means creator of heaven and earth. He then reminds him of an old truth, that God is the creator and provider of all things. In response, Abram gives a tenth of all the riches he's just acquired and bow downs and worships God. Then when the king of Sodom arrives, he turns around and says, give to my allies what they deserve and then take it. Take all the riches. I don't want even a thread of it for no one will be able to claim that they gave Abram his wealth, only the Lord my God. So he sends the king of Sodom back and all is restored. What Melchizedek revealed to Abram in part, Jesus reveals to us in fullness. You see, Abraham, um, Melchizedek gave him a name and revealed an old truth. But Jesus reveals to us the full character of who God is. Jesus um, reveals to us 
exactly what it means to enter into a covenant with God. Through Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, we are invited into an abundant, lavish life with El Ilion. Through Jesus, we are free to fully rely on God's provision, to be faithful with the gifts he has gifted us, and to be generous with what he's entrusted us with. All our needs are met in Christ. Um, Jesus, when Jesus gave um, the Last Supper, and when we are invited to the Lord's table, we are reminded that what um, Melchizedek did in part, Jesus does fully. He is the bread broken for us. His blood is the wine of the new covenant. Our invitation to worship is absolute. The cost is not a tenth. It is our whole lives. But we will never forget El Ilion, the creator and provider of all things, God of heaven and earth. This morning we're going to go into a time of communion. We're going to remember who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us. When everything seems lost, Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the provider. He is the sustainer. He is the author. He is the alpha. He is the omega. When we come to break bread together and share in wine together, we are reminded that Jesus' death was enough. His resurrection assures us of life. And his ascension means that we are never, ever without somebody advocating for us day and night. Whatever our needs are, they are met fully in him. So I'm going to invite the band up and the guys who've got the bread and wine to get themselves ready. And as they move along, I'm going to pray. Father, thank you that your word is breathed full of life. That every story and every scripture sings your name. Jesus, as we read the words, as we reflect on their meaning, as we invite the Holy Spirit for our soul to respond to your word. And as you lead us into a place of rest and relationship, Lord, I pray that this act of remembering, this act of attention, this act of noticing what you did for us on the cross and what it means for our lives, Lord, I pray that you would minister to us afresh today. Reveal your name to us. Remind us of old truths forgotten. Lord, you don't just demand 10% of us, but you invite us into a lavish life, lived obediently for you. So Lord, as we share and as we pray and as we worship, would you come and minister to us afresh today? Amen. So, for those of you unfamiliar with how we do it, 
There are a few stations around the room. You rip it off. You rip off the bread, you dunk it in the cup, and then you take it back to your seat and spend some time with Jesus. Gluten-free at the back. This is an open table. If you know Jesus, if you love him, then you are welcome. If you don't know this Jesus that we've been singing about this morning, that we've been praying to, that we've been learning about, he knows you. He is inviting you into a conversation that will last a lifetime and forevermore. If you would like to know who Jesus is, we would love to pray with you. This is a day for you to come and start a conversation with a beautiful mind who understands yours in a different way to anybody else. You are welcome. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.